Welcome to Journaling with Nature, the podcast for those who want to turn curiosity into wonder, a pencil sketch into a rabbit hole of discovery, a moment of stillness into a life full of joy. I'm your host, Bethan Burton. Let's open the pages of our nature journals and explore this world together. Hello, this is episode 32. Today I'm speaking with a guest you may already know. (laughs) She's a big part of the Nature Journal community, one of the organisers of the Wild Wonder Nature Journaling Conference, and a naturalist, artist and explorer who has been keeping field journals for around 40 years. I'm talking about Roseanne Hansen. This conversation explores Roseanne's work as a naturalist and nature journal teacher, her tools and techniques, and her experience in desert environments all around the world, including Australia. It made me smile to hear her laughing at my questions and how she answered them with passion and an obvious deep love of nature. Let's listen. Roseanne, thank you so much for being here with me. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Bethan. I'm excited. And I always start my interviews by asking about earlier nature experiences. And I'm wondering, did you have nature in your life from the beginning, from childhood? Oh, yes. I was really, really lucky. I grew up, um, my, my parents intentionally bought land way out outside of town, which was unusual, you know, back in the 50s and 60s. Uh, and, and so, yes, I grew up, I mean, we just we just ran amok in the desert. Yeah. And my parents were so lovely. The only rule was to be home before dark and to not get hurt. And if we got hurt, we had to do it by the road so my dad could find us. <laughs> <laughs> That's the opposite of helicopter parenting. That's just like, you go and, ra- you know, mm-hmm. let no, the na- nature raise you. <laughs> I love it, it. It is. And I think it, it allowed me two things that um, to learn independence and to learn to be responsible and smart, but also to love nature. Mm, mm, That's beautiful. And so in college, you studied journalism as well as ecology and evolutionary biology, and you've been keeping field journals since college. And that's, that's amazing. And it sounds like back then it was very focused on writing and taking rigorous field notes. And then eventually, bit by bit, uh, you started adding illustrations and sketches to your journal and I'd love to hear you speak about that about the evolution of your journaling practice from the beginning and the way it's changed and developed oh yes so yes I started out um, my my field notes journals were largely in in college actually before then I actually journaled as as a girl too so I actually started when I was about eight years old wow but um, they became nature journals in college Um, field notebooks. And I used the Grinnell method, which is a scientific method that was taught to us in school. Sadly, I don't think it's taught anymore, but it's a pretty rigorous method of keeping notes. You keep prose notes, but you also keep a smaller journal um, when you're in the field to keep rapid notes. So you're keeping species lists. And if you're collecting things, you know, if you're, you're doing a biological study or what have you, and then you transfer those notes into your larger notebook, um, and and it's it's pretty rigorous. And I did that for decades, mm-hmm. and then I started slowly adding sketching. I've always been creative. Um, I used to um, uh, 
be a, a well, I guess I still am, but I used to, to um, be an uh, jeweler, a uh, lapidary and metalsmith. Mm-hmm. And I've always liked to just make things and be creative. And so the sketching just sort of happened. And, um, but as I was telling someone today, it, it was slow going because I'm a perfectionist. Um, the, <laughs> the science part of me wanted it to be perfect scientific mm. illustrations. And it actually, uh, it, it caused me to actually stop journaling for a while because I didn't like what I was producing. And I finally discovered John Muir Laws and his community and the encouragement to use drawing to learn, not learning to draw. And after I let that go, it was amazing how much better I got when I stopped being strangled by perfection. Um, not to say I don't still try, strive for um, accurate drawing, but I focus on the details to help me identify a bird or a plant and, and not worry too much about how perfect it is. Yeah. Yeah. I love what you said, drawing to learn and not learning to draw, because there's a huge difference in those, those two things. And drawing to learn is exploration. It's diving into something. It's finding details, not because you want to represent something perfectly, but because they're bringing out the curiosity in you and the learning. I love that distinction. Exactly. Um, Every single time I sit down to study something to um, to, to draw it in, in my journal, I learned something about it, even if it's something I've looked at a hundred times. And in my classes, I teach. It's so much fun when I do that because, you know, I'll pick like, um, you know, a tangerine leaf out of our garden. And it's the last time I did that, uh, I was, I learned something about tangerine leaves and because I see them every day, but because I studied it to draw it, I learned something. So it's really cool. Yeah. I love that. And that's one of the most wonderful joys about nature journaling, isn't it? It's finding the things, finding wonder in the things you thought you knew. Exactly. Exactly. And the things we see every day that you don't need to go to Africa or South America or Australia (laughs) (laughs) to see something amazing. Of course, for you, it would be, you know, coming to the... American Southwest or yes. something. you don't need to to find amazing things they're right in our backyards yes so you spent 20 years as a freelance writer explorer you wrote for magazines you wrote books on adventure and natural history and I've heard you speak about something you and your husband call jumping off cliffs <laughs> saying yes to chance opportunities in life and jumping off cliffs led you to so many amazing adventures through life and I'd love to hear you speak about that about saying yes to opportunities in life and where that has taken you <laughs> that's funny that you grabbed that one um, well done so yeah so people do often ask us because we we've led a, a life that I'm super happy with um and it came about because I had I had to let go of my early on you know it came from my family you know my dad was an engineer and you know always planning planned everything didn't do anything by chance didn't do anything that wasn't very carefully planned vacations were planned everything was planned um, <laughs> and so 
uh, I'm married young, still married to Jonathan, 37 years. Wow. And um, yeah, I married when I was 19. Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> first plus. Um, so now together, um, it's when opportunities come up and they're scary and, and they think, so, you know, we had jobs, we were in, you know, really just doing fine. And then we had this opportunity, this was our first cliff, to become naturalists in a wildlife uh, refuge in the middle of nowhere, remote wilderness, caretakers and naturalists. Um, there was no pay, it was a volunteer. There's no, you know, there was a phone. This was before the days of the internet. Actually, it was like the first few years of the internet, 1996. And yeah, we just quit everything, rented out our house um, and moved into the middle of nowhere, not knowing how we were going to make a living, nothing. But we thought we just can't pass it up. How and, did you um, make that leap? Did you, was, were you full of nerves or what, did it take a lot of discussion or did you just say, yes, let's do it? I think. At that point, yeah, there was, you know, discussion. It's like, how are we going to do this? And then it was basically, how are we not going to do this? Yeah. We will be so sorry. And then basically from then on out, every four, five, six years, something else would pop up. You know, that kind of ended. And then we had a chance to go um, work on a guest ranch in the Chiricahua Mountains, which is an extremely famous bird birding area in southern Arizona, you know, and then... From there, I met people who ended up offering me a job in Africa. Mm. Um, again, it was like, yeah, I was like, okay, let's just do let's it. Let's do this. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Oh, it sounds amazing. You've had such adventures. Wow. So you were raised in Arizona, and I'd love to hear you speak about your connection with nature, and in particular with the desert ecosystem, because I think the environment where we're raised, is it becomes part of us, and I imagine the desert is part of you. Uh, another really good insight. Yes, my husband and I actually both grew up out, outside of Tucson in the desert. Um, we actually, our families knew each other growing up, but we didn't meet um, until college. Wow. Yeah. Um, my Our moms knew each other. It's kind of crazy. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, so both of us very much so. The, the Sonoran Desert, which is where we're from, uh, we're actually lucky where we are is an intersection of, of multiple deserts. So we're at the intersection of the Sonoran Desert, the Chihuahuan Desert, also the, the Great Basin, the Great Plains, and the, um, the se several de deserts all come together, the Mojave, and then grasslands, and then our sky islands. So we have an extremely special landscape. Um, but deserts globally really draw us so the places we love the most so australia getting into the middle of the, of the red desert in australia was one of the highlights of our lives we spent several years traveling in australia with our land cruiser and um, same with namibia we and um, the atacama desert in south america we just love deserts can't can't wait to yeah. I think Mongolia is kind of our next, the Gobi. Yeah, wow. Yeah, I was actually going to ask you about that. You've already brought it up about the feeling of deserts in different places. Do, do they have this? What's the same and what's different? Is it, mm. the, is it mm. the feeling of the atmosphere? I mean, I, I presume that the soil is different or is it the same? I, I'm just interested no, about the comparison. No, that's a good question. I think 
um, for me, it always feels like I'm home when I'm in a mm. desert. It doesn't matter. And it could be, could be an Arctic desert because I felt, mm. I felt very much at home in the high Arctic where there's very little um, rainfall uh, and the water is uh, captured in the tundra. So it's not, it's very much a desert. It's a functional mm. desert. And I, I felt at home there. So I think it has to do with... One, I, I'm never comfortable in a lot of trees. I love I love landscapes where I can see really yeah. far. Um, it might be, you know, aridity. Um, it's also just the, the form and function of the plants and wildlife are, are there's a lot of convergent evolution. So, mm. you know, I recognize things. It's like, oh, yes. you know, that that plant, well, I may not know exactly the name, but I certainly know that its function, how it lives. Um, same with, you know, lizards, snakes, um, animals that are adapted to the desert. I just love them. Yeah. That's so interesting that you said that about forests because I have a dear friend who is from Israel and she's very connected to the desert as well. And she uh, she's here in Australia and they lived in the rainforest. And she said she felt like slightly claustrophobic. Claustrophobic. But, I totally yeah. get that. I yeah. <laughs> because she's used to the expansive sky and the wideness and the openness of the mm-hmm. desert. Um, although right now I have to say we're in a deep, deep drought in the snow. Okay. And it, that's painful. Um, yeah. We could use some rain. There's We're, we're in a period of probably um, uh, botanical regime change and it's mm. so drastic. So major plants are dying and being replaced by other plants Mm. and is this a climate change reaction Uh, it's hard to say i mean for certain we're in climate change yes uh that you know droughts do happen we we have had droughts but this one feels deep and long Mm. and it feels systemic like it it's climate change yeah Mm -hmm. i'd love to hear a little bit more about your adventures in australia how did that come about (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so it was an accident. <laughs> we were um, uh, every year we um, we try to go to England to visit a colleague. My husband uh, is a is a writer as well, and he co-authored uh, probably the the Bible on on expedition travel. It's called the Vehicle Dependent Expedition Guide with Tom Shepard, and mm. so we we distribute the books here. And he, so he's a dear friend. So we try to go every year for business and seeing Tom and our other friends in England. We have a lot of friends in England and Scotland. So I was looking up tickets to go to England and I think this was January uh, 2017. And um, for some reason, we don't know why, the the prices were just absurd. We could usually get them really affordably, but they were like $2,500 each. And, Mm. And we were just like, no. And as I was looking at the you know, what do you call it? Like kayak.com. I was buying my tickets and I got this little fare alert from uh, Air New Zealand. It's like special $700 round trip to Sydney from Los no. Angeles. Are you and, for real? <laughs> I said to Jonathan, I was just like, hey, how do you let's go. let's go to Australia? And he said, sure. So I bought two tickets. Totally oh, no planning. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I was just like, let's, let's go in July. That sounds good. Okay. That's hilarious. Um, and then we thought we were going to rent a, a vehicle, and that turned out to be absurdly expensive for a month. We wanted to stay a month. If you're going to go that far, you know, yes, because yeah. we figured we'd only go once. Um, so we ended up actually buying a, an older Land Cruiser, um, and and then we 
loved it so much, we left it there. We made really good friends, and we went back three years in a row. So we saw every state. Um, Did you? But we didn't, the only region we didn't explore really, really well was the far north. Mm-hmm. Oh, there's some amazing landscapes mm-hmm. up there. And yeah, but they, that's where all the big crocodiles are. Too. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I was glad we didn't see them. Yes, you're right. I'm sure you've seen much more of Australia than me. Isn't it funny that um, we often explore other countries before we explore our own? It's true. We have a lot of Australian friends who we we joke um, have actually seen more of America than we have. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. Yeah, I spent a lot of time in England and did a lot of exploring in New Zealand, but not so much here yet. But yeah. I'm looking forward to that. Well, with a young family, it's really hard. So Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd love to talk about your tools because you use what you call a minimalist toolkit when you're sketching outdoors. And for those who don't, who haven't heard about your sketching tools, I wonder if you could describe your simple minimalist nature journaling kit. Sure. So one of the things, when I, when I first was adding... Uh, sketches and watercolor which I just fell in love with watercolor um I just went overboard like I think all of us do you know I had probably I don't know like 50 colors (laughs) you just buy everything you see because it's like oh my gosh that's beautiful I want that one (laughs) I want that one and I I, uh, also took all the deep dives especially with Jane Blundell and they're an Australian who's I call her the queen queen colorist Yes, she's Um, incredible. Amazing. You know, and I just went in deep, 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 deep. And then I realized I was, you know, I'm a naturalist. And nature journaling for me is about recording what I'm seeing. And I was I was getting a bit too bogged down in and being like gripped. It's called gripped. If if you've ever done rock climbing, um, there's this thing called gripped where if you're climbing and you get you don't all of a sudden you're like You're paralyzed. Yeah, paralyzed. Mm, You're like, mm -mm, I don't know what to do. And that's kind of how I felt when I got to that point in coloring because I had too many colors and I had like Mm. five different brushes and you juggle things and lose things and drop things. And so finally I just said, okay, Jane Blundell was like into uh, triads and, and getting things down to a really simple system. So I started teaching myself to mix all the colors I needed with just three primary colors. Um, then learned the hard way that that um, red is not a primary color, even though a zillion tutorials tell us yes. you, you just use, you just need red, yellow, and blue. It's like, well, it doesn't actually work that great. Yes. So right now, so what I finally come down to is I use them. Um, what I call the true primary colors. So a, a cyan color, which for me, I love manganese blue, which Daniel Smith now has a lovely manganese blue hue. Um, and then I use um, a magenta, so quinacridone rose. And then uh, I, I love a neutral yellow, uh, mm-hmm. uh, a yellow that's not like going to be really, really warm or really, really too bright. Um, so I use aureolin, which... Um, Again, Daniel Smith has really refined it, and it's now it's no longer a fugitive color. Yes, but for I was going to say that's okay. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's not super super light fast, but it, it's no longer considered fugitive, which means um, a fugitive so fugitive colors used to um, it, you use them in a painting, and then if they're like hung on a wall, 
sometimes within even a few years, the colors fade. And, and I think some of the Turners, I think he used, he loved, um, oh. I think he said, and I, I could be wrong, so do, this is just a, a vague recollection, but yes, I believe it was one of the lake colors, like Scarlet Lake early on. He loved it so much and he used it in everything, but it was so fugitive. Oh, but he wow. didn't care because he would just, he just loved sell it. it. <laughs> he figured, oh, well, <laughs> be gone. it's probably gone. So what do I care? Um, but I'll have to look up what color that <laughs> yeah. was and if it wow, was Turner. That's but. interesting. Anyway, so um, that way, and then I just add a couple of other, like my little second favorite colors are... Um, and a dandruff blue, really, really, really dark blue that can actually be used as on its own for practically the darkest dark you need. Mm. And um, burnt sienna, which, you know, creates a beautiful black really quickly with with the, the blue. So those are all I use now. And I use one brush, a travel brush, um, an isobay or, or the rosemary makes one that's really similar. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's it. Fantastic. Yeah, and I love it. I love it, love it, love it. Um, sometimes I'll throw in a, a few extras. I'm totally in love with green leaf and blueberry colors. In fact, I've switched all to green leaf and blueberry when when Jess Greenleaf came out with um, her primary colors. So she has a cyan, a magenta, and a yellow now that <laughs> are gorgeous. So um, these are handmade, handmade watercolors, like literally. Mm. They make them by hand, and they're wow. super hard to come by. And they're, but they're, I can't even tell you how gorgeous they are in mm. terms of their texture and okay. how they spread so beautifully. But um, so you oh, Daniel Smith is also lovely. It yeah. is there is a big difference. Yeah. Um, I'm interested because I I love color as well. I love chatting about color, and I'm wondering because often the color that's recommended for cyan is phthalo blue and you like to choose manganese blue hue and i'm interested the the only reason is um uh and i love phthalo blue but um it's also extremely staining yes and i like to go quickly and i i sometimes do what i call a blork (laughs) on your mega mistake or whatever and then i if i use the lifting colors i Uh quickly like get it off the page yes um phthalo is you have to be completely committed in anything you mix with phthalo. Yes. It's there forever and ever, and you, it's really hard to lift. Actually, it's mm. impossible to lift. That's that's a great point. Yeah, good. But it's a gorgeous color. It's very um, vibrant and bright, isn't it? But Jess Greenleaf's um, cyan is is as vibrant as phthalo, mm-hmm. but it lifts. It's liftable. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, so I took a class from another Australian, so John Lovett. Um, don't, he's, a, he's an I artist, don't not a nature. He doesn't, he does journal, but he's not known in the nature journaling world. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's, I think he's, he's not far from you. I think he's okay. outside of Brisbane. Uh, anyway, I took a class from him. He loves America and um, he loves the phthalo colors. So okay. he's always got phthalo green and phthalo blue. And um, and then I just loved taking class from John. He helped free me from the tyranny of perfection and colors. His palette <laughs> is, is stunningly awful in terms of he leaves everything on the palette. It's this grimy, gross, like... And he's always just like, oh, that looks like this. Yeah, he just like, oh, okay, you know, 
here's a nice brown and people will ask you know this is like, how did you mix that and he said oh i have no idea just put it off the palette <laughs> oh i love that yes i so, tend to do that too like from yeah, yesterday's painting it's exactly. like oh actually that will work quite well here even even though you don't quite know what was in there. And that taught me that to relax about color, right? It yes. doesn't have to be. I think we get stuck on rules and rules yes. paralyze us sometimes. Mm. And, mm. Um, and, and, and we learned that from Tony Foster as well. Um, if you got to listen to Tony Foster at the um, Wild Wonder, and I got to, to hear Tony speak in person in Tucson as well. And, all the artists in the room were like, Tony, tell us what's in your palette. And he pulls out his little palette, which is a tiny little travel palette. And he said, I have no idea what these colors are. <laughs> he says, I just go into the store and I buy what looks good. And if I like it, I use it. Yes. And if I don't, I throw it away. Fantastic. And That's so really that, freeing, isn't it? Isn't it? Oh, uh, yeah. And he does amazing work. Um, so I, I love that about about just just learning um about colors and and using them is is to just do what makes you happy and yes i bet your painting gets a lot better if you just relax and 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 do what makes you happy yes oh it's so fun to know about colors as well and just mm -hmm. to know know a little bit of the theory and then just to throw it out and have a base from which you can just then experiment I know, and I, I learned so much from you um, at your class at Wild Wonder that um, I, I had, you know, getting the muted colors, I really enjoyed your explanation. I've never seen anyone explain it as well as you did, um, using the, that you had your your um, primary colors, but then you also used your other favorite colors that were um, complementary, I think. Um, and then I loved how you, you showed how you can quickly knock back a brighter color with its It's opposite, opposite. on the color wheel. And yeah. I always did it just a slightly different way, but it was the same way. I just didn't know why I was doing it. Yes. And you explained <laughs> it. And then it was like, bing, you know, the light goes off. And I love oh, that. Wow. It totally is awesome. And so, yeah, your color theories are excellent. You're, you're much more of a colorist than I am. I'm a... I call myself lazy. <laughs> lazy. <laughs> I, <am. laughs> I learned a lot from Jane Blundell as well. She's amazing. And her website is just... Isn't it just amazing? This... Did you ever take any classes from her? Yes, I did. Oh, and oh. this, um, you can see the color chart yeah. behind me. This is one from oh. Jane's um, watercolor class. Yeah. The, the way she explains it, like you can have a triad. doesn't have to be this triad. It can be... A muted triad and then you get a whole nother color exactly. wheel and the, the idea of making multiple color wheels from different triads is yeah it's really empowering it's really fun i also um after learning that from jane as well i was like oh okay like, you can do this with anything really yeah and there's no rules but um i i put together a little triad of uh i i call them natural tints so like a yellow ochre um and actually, it's a Sleeping Beauty Turquoise Blue from Daniel Ooh, Smith. That's a nice name. Oh, it's it's <laughs> it's made from a real turquoise, so it's got a copper base. And the magenta, I use a, a green leaf in blueberry. Uh, it's a purple ochre. And oh, wow. I can mix, you know, greens and and beautiful uh, 
purplies and things, but they're all really muted, kind of like really an earthy. old-fashioned tint. Yes. And then when you use a triad like that in a painting, you get such amazing color harmony. Everything's working exactly. yeah. with itself. Oh, so fun. Well, while we're talking about this, I'd love to hear, and I know that my listeners would love to hear you talk about what you call feral watercolors. <laughs> <laughs> so you have a workshop where you teach people how to create paint from rocks and soil. And yeah, I'd love to hear all about this. Oh, fun. Yes, that's a an obsession that <laughs> I don't think it'll be over for a long time. So <laughs> it started in Australia. Did you? Uh, it did. It started there when we were traveling through uh, traditional lands and there was a, a sign. Um, so this was outside uh, Udnadatta, um, on the Udnadatta track um, in the Red Desert. And um, there was a sign that said, um, you know, heritage area, uh, ancient ochre site. And, you know, there was a sign and you could park and overlook this enormous canyon. And it had yellow ochres, red ochres, purple ochres, all hues in between of course you don't collect anything but um, there was a lot of information about um, how uh, the the traditional people of Australia use ochres in um, painting uh, uh, skins early early on you know rocks their bodies everything um, that they could decorate and of course still used today for art and and ceremony so coming back home, I thought, oh, I'm going to learn more about making my own, you know, gathering pigments because I know rocks around here. There's loads of red ochres around here or red. I should call them iron oxides. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so I just kind of dived deep into it. North of me is a landscape called the Painted Desert. And wow. um, yeah. And if you look on Google Earth, Google the Painted Desert North America. But you have to be in the satellite view. Um, you'll see it's an amazing landscape of oxide oh. earth in purples and yellows and reds. So uh, I learned where I could collect legally, mostly roadside cuts, and um, learned how to do my own paint. So there's a lot of misinformation on the internet, haha, <laughs> surprise, <laughs> about how to make grind pigments, how to make pigments, mm-hmm. how to make paint. Um, so it's a lot of trial and error. And, um, so now I, I'm teaching classes on it because it's really fun to do. I've actually got one coming up April 24th online. So Fantastic. Um, anyone can join. Yeah. It's, um, it's through the Natural History Institute that I partner with sometimes. But yeah. So and I even, well, sadly, I don't know if I could get them to Australia. But um, in fact, we probably wouldn't want to do that. If you're in North America, you can, I mail you a kit of a pigment and the binder, um, but we wouldn't mail it to Australia because that would be mailing soil to Yes, Australia place, has very you, strict laws. Oh, and they should, and you yeah. would never, ever want to transport soil like that. So, um, however, it's really fun. And so I do a lot of place-based soil collecting and experimenting. I've... I've used magnetite from a mountain range in in the northern Mexico to to do some sketching of that range. It's it's really fun. Ah, so cool. Um, there's so much in that. I, firstly, I want to say I love how you are respectful of 
the land and its people and being responsible about where you collect and within the laws and the limits. And secondly, I love what you said about creating place-based art and journal entries because, you know, if you're gathering the soil and you're painting the landscape with the landscape, that's a really powerful thing, isn't it? You connect it in yes. this really amazing cycle. I really, really delve deep into that. I love that. Um, and that's that's why I wanted to do it. Uh, and and I just can't seem to stop now. And now when I, <laughs> I go I go places, I'm always looking at soil for for potential pigment. And um, I learned a lot about it. You know, uh, one thing I would point out to people to be very careful, though, because just because pigments are natural doesn't mean they are safe. Mm-hmm. So you have to be quite careful. Uh, like you, if you were in the American Southwest and you found some uh, coppery uh, oxides, turquoises and stuff, you wouldn't process those on your own because they get ingesting them would be super bad for you. Okay, um, interesting. Yeah, they aerosolize. And, and so I learned a lot. Um, yes. So I do teach how to be safe, um, smart, um, about how you do it and how to be legal and respectful. And if, the nice thing is you only need a tiny, tiny bit yeah. to make a lot of pigments. So like literally a little stone the size of, say, um, I don't know, a, uh, I'm trying to think of an Australian coin. <laughs> Yeah, (laughs) $2 Um, coin. Yeah, so, or even smaller than that, actually, I think. Um, You know, say three, a couple of centimeters across. Wow. And diameter will grind up and make you a a nice little half pan paint. Wow. And do you know how they last on the page? Like, do they Mm, change over time? Do they seep through the page? We'll we'll find out. I I know, I haven't. I think oxides would not fade very much, but other pigments might. Um, yeah, I haven't done any light, fast tests. Mm-hmm. I think in a sketchbook it's different because it's not accessing the light as much. Correct. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And if you use a good binder, it's going to stay on the page. Yeah. So. Oh, so fun. It's so much fun. I highly recommend <laughs> it. It reminds me of a teacher I had on an online uh sketching course and he was saying wherever he is he collects water for his watercolors so if he's at the beach he'll just scoop a little bit of seawater or if he's by a creek he'll scoop some water from the creek i love that yeah Yeah, it connects you in this sort of deeper way doesn't it i it does and that would be fun to do because Mm. of course the salt water will will change react differently yes and yeah, you have to be really brave to do that, don't you? Because, you know, it's like it might look awful. Yes. But as long as you just, you know, put that in your, that's part of the experience, isn't it? Absolutely. Again, yeah, it's about freeing up, letting go. This is a recurring theme in all my conversations about nature journaling is how to do that, how to let go, how mm. to do it for you, how to do it for the process, not the product, and all those good oh. things that so we talk you, about. Do you find that? So I find that... You tell me if you've found this. I find kids are so much better about just jumping in and they're not worried about yes. being judged yet. Yes. But it's around junior high school, high school, where they start to worry about being judged. Yes. I think it's even earlier than that. I think around eight or nine. Mm, that's um, too bad. Yeah. I think there's a point, there's definitely a point um, where 
the the inner critic comes to life and it's such a shame um but yeah, yeah. it's very hard to let go of that critic and I had to I'm a yes. perfectionist um how did you do it what were your strategies for letting that go that's a good question because I am asked that a lot and I see people struggling a lot um so it's I think starting small in the way of okay I would I noticed I was biting off too much initially like I would choose to sketch something that was just way out of my my ability to Mm -hmm. even finish and so starting smaller um picking something that doesn't fly away so um that's maybe why I'm I'm really much better I I can really get into doing plants I love botanical illustration Mm -mm. but it's because they don't fly away (laughs) (laughs) but I'm I'm doing birds now too but yeah um, they're hard yes Um, but, but yeah so doing that small um Forcing myself to go sketch in public where people mm-hmm. watch me. Mm-hmm. That the first time I did that, oh Isn't my gosh, I was so intimidated, and God. and then someone comes before you've even like put down proper marks, and then you're thinking, oh, and then you're thinking they're thinking, blah blah. It's uh-huh. awful. <laughs> so that was the biggest thing is going to. I would go to the Arizona Sonora Desert Museum, where they have it's a wonderful living zoo where they the animals are in natural enclosures and they're not in barred cages and stuff so it's quite lovely it's a lot like the taronga zoo and yes i would just sit and and then make myself just do it (laughs) and people would start treating me like i was one of the exhibits and they would just (laughs) stand behind you and look over my shoulder and of course you know what every time even when it was really awful people would say oh my god that's so beautiful and I think okay you know what just absorb that that is beautiful great and then I let those people teach me to let go in a way Mm. and then people would take selfies with me it was hilarious it was like I know it was quite hilarious and then (laughs) I just embraced it I was like okay that's Um, lovely because we as a species you know evolution has carved us out so that we are designed to hold on to the negative things Mm. because it's a survival thing if you're if you're if you've got your senses out for danger then you're going to survive longer but it's not a very nice trait to have in the modern world (laughs) what a great observation that is a really good observation as a a good naturalist So we, yeah, we're sort of physically designed to to hook onto the negative, and we have to let the positive in in a in a very conscious way. And it sounds like you've done that with the. But it took me. Yes, it had to be conscious. I had to allow it. And you know what? You have to do. You have to stop yourself from saying, "Oh no, no, this is awful." Mm-mm-mm. You know, like, "Oh no, this will be so much better tomorrow after I've spent twenty seven hours yes. on it." Um, <laughs> You, you 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 really do have to not say that. Mm. You have to accept the compliment and smile, and then it becomes true. Ah, uh, I love that so much. I can just yeah. imagine you there and people are looking at you. Oh, you should see some of my sketches too, because when I'm nervous, when I don't, ah, uh, yeah, you know, and I think people are watching me. You know, my sketching is really like, oh my gosh, you know, like 
it doesn't even look remotely like what I intended. And I was I was pushing myself. I was trying to sketch live coyotes. You know, that's oh, wow. like a coyote is like your dingo. Mm. Um, uh, you know, and and things that were moving and, um, but, <laughs> so that's what I would recommend Good on people you. do My goodness. to to help get over that. Um, and I know I know how hard that is, but it, we really should also um, sharing work with others in in a venue like you know whether Instagram or mm-hmm. Facebook and the Nature Journaling Club sharing with with yeah colleagues and 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 others is is i don't think you can grow much until you do that honestly um, and get the feedback um and, and one of the the things i did recently well was it about five months ago maybe six months um a lot of my beginning beginning students were telling me, well, no, I'm not, I'm not can't post on the Nature Journal Club because there's so many amazing artists and I'm so horrible. I'm, so we started a little tiny private group um, just for beginner beginners. Uh-huh. Um, and so people who've gotten my book or taken my classes, they come and join there and then people are much more willing to post, you know, their stick figures and their, 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 what they think are their failures. And they get tons of great advice and feedback from other beginners. Um, So, you know, we just ask that people apply to the group and promise that they're beginners and not professional artists who just want to show off their work, which is fine, which is great. But Putting everybody together can be, be intimidating. really hard. Yes. Yes. Oh, so good. So I love that, that you're nurturing the beginners in a really safe way. Oh, it's, I love teaching. Uh, I teach it, it through my, I, I'm the art and science coordinator at the Desert Laboratory on Tumamak Hill, which is North America's, our oldest field station. And, um, and I teach through that as well. And wow. yeah, I, I really love introducing people to the joys of nature journaling. It's, it's wonderful. Yeah. So speaking about that, there's, so we talked a little about how your journals had changed through time, adding sketching as time went on, but there's another more recent development that's happened, which is that you're now evolving to your teaching being a lot online because of the <laughs> pandemic. And, <laughs> you can't <and> heard... <laughs> No, what I heard you speak about a a point in time when you said, (laughs) online learning, that's not for me, da, da, da. Actually, no, it was worse than that. Okay, tell me. (laughs) It was, I know exactly when it was. I was in a staff meeting for the Desert Laboratory and and, uh, it was was, uh, February 2020. You know where this is going, don't you? (laughs) Before the pandemic. Someone said, oh, we need to, we need to develop online classes everyone's doing it and I said no no this is about nature we have to teach in nature we don't teach nature online I'm sorry we just it's just I can't do that so funny and then one month later bam one month later we had to cancel every single class and um within five months I had done a complete pivot and um and the most wonderful thing happened. Uh, I love it. Um, I've taught over over fifteen hundred people online now, and um, from all over the world. So we'll have instead of fifteen people in a class, I've had hundred and fifty. Wow! Um, 
from all over the world. So people get to meet and see other people, other experiences, and they see that we're not so isolated. Yes, and that's the beauty of it, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And I think uh, we won't stop um, at, at the Desert Laboratory on Tumamak Hill. We've decided to move forward with um, hybrid teaching. So from now on out, all of our classes will be both online and in person. So we're going to we're working out how to do the filming and let people come in on Zoom remotely. Wow. I know. Fantastic. Oh, wow. Um, so yeah, shut my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. <laughs> But you have sort of pioneered this new style of online class, which is the it's the nature journaling field trip. And you have taken people to places all across the world through these online field trips. And I'd love for you to talk about this sort of new genre of, of teaching. <laughs> um, I took it and ran with it, but I really have to say um, it was Ryan Patterson at Stanford University. He and I met at the first Wild Wonder uh, Ryan and I had a connection. He he came to an adventure travel event I used to own called Uberland Expo um, for people who love to get out exploring in their four-wheel drive vehicles and their motorcycles and you know exploring the world. And anyway, so Ryan, we, we knew each other and it was like, oh, hey, how are you? And uh, I didn't know he was the field coordinator for the, the Stanford um, Earth Sciences program meaning he set up all the field trips, right? So, and he's a nature journaler, a field field notes guy. And um, so we were like, oh my gosh, I had no idea. We had that in common too. And then when the pandemic hit, uh, we, I, we were commiserating about, oh my gosh, all of our field work's dead, all of our classes, everything. And he and I collaborated on I, we just challenged ourselves. It was just like, okay, let's do this. Um, and so he introduced me to this 360 degree view technology. We used that for our first field trip together. We co-offered, it was in England, um, where we, we went um, as a geology field trip. And then he, Ryan started teaching, doing that for Stanford. And I pivoted and did mine for my work. And, you know, we taught each other how to do a lot of fun things. So, yes, now I develop these these really cool virtual field trips. And I, I'm just completing one for the Santa Cruz River here in Tucson. We're Ooh. going to be giving a class on, um, I'm doing a math in nature series for, yeah, it's really cool. So we're doing wow. fluid dynamics, which is river, um, literally kind of, you can use mathematics to predict where rivers will meander and travel over time. It's actually, you can use geometry and these equations to predict what rivers will do. Wow. It's really quite interesting. That's a whole nother level, isn't it? it a whole it nother is. area. And so I'm developing a field trip, though, to take online viewers down to mm. the river. And then we can zoom in and see video and... Um, pictures and sounds and it's really fun I love it oh wow and I love that not only does this connect people from distant places in, on earth but mm -hmm. you mentioned also that people have said to you oh you've made these places accessible to me because I have a disability or yeah the, for other reasons that these places aren't accessible yes I didn't even think of that when um, the pandemic hit and we started 
pivoting the, the, the classes that way. Yes, I've gotten a dozen or so correspondence from people who said, wow, you know, I'm disabled. I, I can't hike anymore. But you took me, you know, up, up this mountainside, you know, and, yeah. and I could draw it. And it was amazing. And, and they loved it. Um, or people who, you know, honestly, you know, it's very expensive travel, um, especially out of North America or out of Australia to get anywhere from our continents is, is quite expensive unless we yes. drive to Mexico or Canada. But um, so so getting to travel without also, the, you know, the carbon footprint, you know, yes. the fact that I can have 150 people in a class and, and we haven't gotten on an airplane and um, despoiled the planet that way. Yes. So. Yes, there's so many positives and it's uh, the pandemic has just been so shocking and awful in so many ways. And yet there's these little points of light, isn't there? And it's, um, yes, and that's a really nice way to put it. It really is. So you've written many books in your life, but you've written one specifically about nature journaling and it's called Nature Journaling for a Wildlife. Can you tell the listeners about what they'll find inside your beautiful oh. book. <laughs> so, yes, it's, it's a unique book. And um, I am a writer, like you said, so it was quite natural for me to, to kind of have this idea. Like, I struggled a lot with the process of, of figuring out how to, how to nature journal if I had, you know, thinking back, if I had never done it. Obviously, I had a field journal but adding sketches and doing it for people, introducing it to people who've never done anything like this. Um, and particularly in the times where being meditative and taking care of yourself is also very important. So I love John Muir Law's book, um, The Law's Guide to Nature mm -hmm. Drawing and Journaling. But it took me like three years to work through it. It's so massive. So my book is actually, it's like kind of the, what you would use to get started and move up into John Jack's book. Mm -hmm. And I, because I, I did it as an eight week class. So it's um, literally walks you through. So like, here's what you're going to work on this week, you know, metadata. Why do you do metadata? And, um, you know, moving on, what are the other types of data, you know, numerical uh, words and other ways to express nature data. Um, and so on. And it, I actually even have like at the end of each session uh, is, is um, check-ins like, you know, okay, have mm. you done this? You know, your homework for the week. Great. Is this, so have you done that? So you can use it to make yourself kind of get going. Mm -mm. And then it includes um, high quality watercolor paper. It's a spiral bound. So you get a journal and the teaching all in one, and it includes little pullouts, you know, viewing grids and um, bookmarks and things. So it's quite unique, which is why I wasn't able, to, I haven't been able to get it into the Australian market, unfortunately. I know, Roseanne, I wanted the to buy biggest, a copy. <laughs> I know, the biggest, my, my only, I, there's a distributor there, you know, it's kind of your Amazon, I can't remember the name of your big bookseller. Um, um, fabulous, but um, shipping you know, 500 yes. books to Australia, it, it would be, it's insane. I cannot find an affordable shipping. Yes. So we'll have to, I'm still working out. on that. <laughs> 
So I'll leave a, a link to your book in the show notes for this episode oh, because I think you. it's a really important thing to get into the hands of nature journalists of all different levels, beginners but also experienced. And I know that there's one, the Boreal Nature Journal Club uh, in Alaska is working through your book yes, all together, which is really fun. I love talking with Kevin. They're, they're fabulous. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm so happy that, that folks can use it. And I've, there's some... Uh, uh, student classes um there was a 300 students in boston who used i gave the teachers access to the book digitally free um because they had 300 students working through the book as their science art project which was and i yeah i worked with them on it and it was one of the most special things i've done because they had they gave me a special program at the end and watching what the kids how they observe nature and these a lot of these kids these were kids in boston who nature for them was is the tree planted on the sidewalk it you know they don't have access or the money to go to fancy beautiful forests um and i loved what they come up with Mm, loved it that's wonderful Yeah, how gratifying to you to see that it come alive in that way. Oh, that was so special. So, and I've done that with a few other groups too, so. Oh, Roseanne, it's been absolutely amazing to talk to you, to hear your stories and to go into the background of everything and the details. So thank you so much for being here. Oh, it was such an honor. This is so exciting to be on. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Roseanne. She has such a depth of experience and a really lovely way of expressing her thoughts about nature and creativity. If you're listening to this when the podcast is first aired and you'd like the chance to be part of Roseanne's class, Feral Watercolour, Making Paint from Your Own Found Pigments, you can find a link to that in the show notes of this episode. The class is happening on Saturday, April 24th, 2021 at 9 30 a.m pacific time roseanne is also one of the organizers of the wild wonder nature journaling conference which is happening during june 23rd to 27th 2021 that's a lot of 20s (laughs) the conference brings together teachers and speakers and everyone has a passion for nature and nature journaling and they offer classes on a huge range of topics to help you level up your nature journaling skills and have heaps of fun exploring different media and techniques. There'll be a mixture of classes, panel discussions and lectures, as well as poetry, nature journaling challenges, and chances to socialize and share journal pages. You can check out the link in the show notes for this episode to find out more about that. I wanted to also let you know that there are two ways you can support this podcast If you've been enjoying the episodes, the first way is by going to patreon.com slash journaling with nature and pledging a donation there. You can offer as little as $1 per month. The donation amount is totally up to you and your support there helps to keep this project sustainable and helps me continue to bring episodes to you each week. The second way to support this podcast is by giving a five star rating and a review wherever you listen to podcasts. This helps new listeners find us and brings nature journaling to more people. (laughs) So thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next week.